Grace to you and peace of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. James Dunn, in his commentary on Romans, suggests that the principal feature of the section, our text from Romans chapter 6, is the sustained sequence of antitheses. In these 12 verses, there are no fewer than nine pairs of opposites. Verse 13, are our members to be instruments of unrighteousness or righteousness? 15, are we under law or under grace? Verse 16 reads, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or of disobedience which leads to righteousness? And again in 19 and 20, the list goes on and on, including death and life, and finally ending with the antithesis of wage versus gift. Two of these antithetical pairs invite our attention as we begin this morning. They appear in verses 18 and 22 and are identical in form. Listen again to the former. You, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. The contrast is not between freedom and slavery, as we might suppose in a quick reading. Rather, the opposition is between sin on the one hand and righteousness on the other. And the remarkable thing is this. Paul claims that our status as slaves has not changed. Only our master, the one who rules over us, has changed. We are still slaves, according to Paul. As confessional Lutherans, we have no difficulty with the slavery to sin part, right? We confess it again this morning. O Almighty God, merciful Father, I, poor, miserable sinner, confess to you all my sins and iniquities, etc., etc., we take to heart Jesus' words from John chapter 8. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. But the good news, the gospel of Romans chapter 6 is this. That slavery is ended. We have died to sin, verse 2. We were buried, therefore, with Christ by baptism into death, verse 4. And because Christ rose from the dead, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. You are free. Jesus has freed us to be slaves. Slavery is a difficult concept for us. It sounds harsh and grating to the ears of a society which so highly values individualism, personal choice, liberty, above all. Yet it is the reality of our creatureliness. Again from Dunn, the theological insight that man exists only as a creature, only in a relationship of dependency on a superior being. His vaunted freedom and independence are illusory. If not enslaved to God, then enslaved to sin, either in Adam or in Christ. A third option isn't given. The only real freedom for man is as a slave to God, a life lived in recognition of his creaturely dependence. Close quote. We cannot change the reality of our creatureliness, but we can mitigate some of our uneasiness about slavery by attending to one Greek word in the text. It appears twice as a noun and three times as a verb. Our translation renders it obedience or to obey. Hupakuo is a compound word from the preposition under and the verb to listen, to listen under. 
to listen and respond appropriately. The positive idea that one receives the divine word by hearing and then translates it into action comes to us through the Septuagint, which translates the Hebrew word Shema, which means to listen, to hear, to trust, to believe. This word becomes the turning point, the hinge of these contrasting pairs in our reading. It appears at the very center of verse 16 in this explicit statement. You are slaves of the one whom you obey, the one you listen to, the one to whom you respond. So the first question is simply this. Whose slave are you? And the first thing we need to say about that question is, praise God, I have a choice. Only the baptized, only those who recognize their former slavery to sin even get to hear the question. Back in chapter 5, Paul used our word in describing both sides of the slavery question. Verse 19 from that chapter. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, our word, the many were made righteous. Whose slave are you? Paul looks for an obedience which answers, which responds to the obedience of Christ as he lays out the alternatives in parallel fashion. Either the sin that leads to death or obedience that leads to righteousness. We have died to sin. So in what sense are we slaves to righteousness? And even more critical to our confession, how does our obedience lead to righteousness? We need to recognize that Paul uses the word group righteous in at least two distinct ways. The primary way, both with regard to time as well as salvation, is his forensic use of the term. God declares us righteous for Christ's sake. Earlier in chapter 6, for the one who has died, that is in baptism, has been set free from sin. You are free. You are righteous. This is our justification passive righteousness we receive from God. But the second use, which pertains to our sanctification, is best illustrated perhaps by that first pair of opposites in verse 13. All right. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. It points to an understanding of righteousness that is active and busy, a living power that breaks the bondage of sin. So whose slaves are we? Slaves to God and to His purpose. Slaves to righteous obedience. And this leads to the second question. How do we, the baptized, serve? What does that slavery look like? Paul gives us at least three descriptors in our, of our servitude. First of all, it is from the heart. Verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient, our word again, from the heart. We should not take this word heart adverbially as if Paul is saying we have become sincerely or truly obedient. Rather, it is a heart with ears. A heart that passively hears and then actively responds. From the heart with faith, a faith which Paul said will say comes from hearing in chapter 10. I must confess, I get a little squeamish about heart talk from the pulpit. 
Too many praise songs, I think. <laughs> Too much giving my heart to Jesus talk. I, I'm, I'm the crusty old curate in Bo Garrett's Hammer of God who declares the heart is a rusty old can on a junkie. But a wonderful Lord passes by and has mercy on the wretched tin can and sticks his walking cane through it and rescues it from the junk pile and takes it home with him. That's the way it is, according to the curate. My, my best impression of the heart is it's a battlefield. But to be fair, Paul does speak about Christ dwelling in our hearts. Hence the battlefield in Ephesians. And even closer to home, he has this to say about hearts in Romans 2. Quote, But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. So this obedience that Paul speaks about is not self-produced, it's by one's own willpower, but elicited by the Spirit. Luther writes about this new obedience this way. Christ has earned not only grace for us, but also the gift of the Spirit, so that we might not only have the forgiveness of sins, but also stop sinning. The second descriptor of the new slavery we find in the continuation of verse 17. You became obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. The standard of teaching is that teaching which is the mold by which our lives are to be shaped, to which we were delivered up in our baptism as slaves to a new master. We do not receive forgiveness of sins as license to sin. That's what Paul's point back in 15. What then? Are we to sin because we're under law and grace? By no means. Make it though. No way, Jose. Instead, we walk in newness of life as new creatures. The final descriptor of our new slavery is the challenging antithesis with which we started. Having been set free from sin, we have become slaves of righteousness. It is important to know that both of the verbs in the citation are passives. They're divine passives. What God has done Christ has set us free from sin by his death and resurrection. That's the easy one. But in being made a slave, we recognize both aspects of Paul's use of righteousness we discussed earlier. This slavery to righteousness is a relationship received from God, which now avails before him as we respond to God. Luther captures both sides of the antithesis well in this famous couplet in The Freedom of a Christian. A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful slave of all, subject to all. This is how we serve, from the heart, according to God's standard, for the benefit of all creation, especially our neighbor. At this point, we might ask, given our slavery to God, what do we get out of it? What's, what's in it for us? As you might expect from this text, Paul answers that question with another pair of antitheses. First, Paul asks about our former way of life before baptism, the things of which you are now ashamed. What'd you get? Well, the end of those is death. The end, the telos in the Greek, is a larger concept than just the, the temporal one that immediately comes to mind. Yes, it is the eschatological, the end of time living death of an eternity spent in hell but it's also the goal or the fruit of a particular process. This becomes even more vivid when we consider the paired opposite in the next verse. 
Paul writes, But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification, and its end, its telos, eternal life. Notice how Paul uses the term sanctification. Middendorf suggests that sanctified living is a consecrated or dedicated state made possible only by the freeing, hallowing, and enslaving work of God. It does not involve freeing ourselves from sin's rule or enslavement. That is something God does for us. Rather, it means engaging in a battle. A battle against what once lorded it over us. We do not make ourselves good trees. Rather, by the tree of the cross, baptized into the death and resurrection of Christ, the fruits of sanctification are produced. Ultimately, fittingly at times, but fruits to the glory of God and the aid of our neighbor. We close with the, the final antithesis, wage versus gift. This is perhaps the best known verse of the text. For the wages of sin is death, and the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In classical Greek, and especially in the Septuagint, the term we translate as wage was actually the ration money paid to a soldier. They didn't have commissaries, you just, they just paid the soldier, and they had to go out and find their own food in the community. So this was, the, this was their wage, their ration money. Belonging to the army of sin, a soldier or slave ends in death. That's what you get. But the opposite side of the contrast is pure joy to be in the presence of our resurrected and ascended Lord forever. From slaves to slaves. Doesn't sound that exciting until we appreciate the depths of our former slavery and the joy that awaits us. But even though that is our end, our telos, today the struggle continues. The dirt, the battle has been joined the formula summarized it well in Article 2, where we read, It follows from this, as has been said, that as soon as the Holy Spirit has begun His work of rebirth and renewal in us through the Word and the Holy Sacraments, it is certain that on the basis of His power, we can and should be cooperating with Him, though still in great weakness. Close quote. We were slaves to sin. But Jesus has freed us, freed us to be slaves of righteousness. Amen. Now may the peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.